0: You are listening to National Security Law
1: Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, and we're here today because we like to bring you news that has to do with current events in national security, national security law, and our purpose is to give you not just knowledge, but context. If you've noticed lately, we've been shifting our focus just a bit to talk about how technology impacts national security and our lives. Last week, we talked to Alex Stamos of the Stanford Internet Research Project. He's also formerly of Facebook. It was a perfect conversation to have right before we get to a conversation with Alex Joel. And that's because today we're going to talk about a little understood area of national security law that is privacy. So the reason Alex is the right person to talk to is that he was the Office of the Director of National Intelligences. I'm going to get this right, Alex, Chief Civil Liberties, Privacy and Transparency Officer. And he is now the Scholar-in-Residence conducting research, developing programming and teaching courses focused on the intersections between law, national security, technology and privacy. Alex, welcome.
0: Thanks so much. It's a it's a real pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the uh, invitation to to be on this fantastic podcast. That is a mouthful to say the title. Uh, I've always found that amusing. Uh, I tried when I first started in the job to come up with different ways of shortening the wordings. The actually, so I've been in this. I had been in this position since stand-up of the OD not back in two thousand and five. So the first DNI was uh, Ambassador Negroponte, and I actually reported directly to him, and I and five DNIs in total, over 14 years in the same job. And the job is actually in the statute, in the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. We all remember IRCPA, right? And that came about <laughs> after the 9-11 Commission and the 9-11 recommendations. And one of the positions that were specifically outlined in that statute was the Civil Liberties Protection Officer. So when I first started, that was my title, the Civil Liberties Protection Officer. But it involved more than civil liberties, it involved privacy. And then later, after, particularly after the Snowden disclosures, we also had transparency. So we came up with this new name for the office. It was actually uh, Director Clapper's suggestion that we put transparency into the name of the office itself. So we came up with the Office of Civil Liberties, Privacy, and Transparency. It just takes a while to say and a while to get used to for 14 years.
1: That's a long time. And you did it well. And you received tremendous compliments from everybody that worked with you, uh, for sure, including on your civility, which apparently is very refined if you managed to work for five DNIs, right?
0: I, I think civility, yes. I, I. And that's actually something I'm very proud of, that you can, you can do this job without being too obnoxious.
1: In this day and age, goodness, that's a plus. All right, let's talk about what's happening globally. First of all, to the concept of privacy and how big techs, maybe big tech, and leaks are partially to blame here, if they are. What do you think?
0: So I think a lot is happening with privacy these days, and, it, and it, you can break it down into different areas. Obviously, we've had an explosion of technology companies and their ability to transform how we communicate, how we work, how we live our lives. But we've had that for a while, and it's been growing. What I think has changed is our awareness of the impact that those technology companies have on our privacy and our personal information. And there, I do think leaks had something to do with it in its own way. So as you know, the Snowden leaks came in 2013. I'm sure the listeners of your podcast are very aware of the timing uh, in the summer of 2013 when those leaks happened. Just as a side note, I have to say, since I've been teaching national security law as well as privacy and technology law at the law school the last couple of years after I retired from ODI, my more recent students have trouble even knowing who Snowden was. For a while, I just felt like everybody lived and breathed the disclosures and the impact that had, of course, on us in the national security community. But as it turns out, we have students now who think of the Snowden disclosures as history, and we have to teach it as history, even though it may still be a vivid memories memory in our lives. But I do think one thing that the Snowden disclosures illuminated for folks was the extent to which companies have our personal data. And of course, the subject of all the attention at the time was the extent to which the intelligence community might be able to access that data. I do think that it had an impact in that way of raising uh, awareness of the risks that we have when we use the technology. Now, I'm not convinced that it's changed behavior a great deal. I don't know what you think about that, Elisa, but- uh, Well,
1: you know, I don't try to figure out where the developer of the app I download is located, but it might be smart for me to do that. Um, (laughs) But I do. Yeah, I I do think people are more sensitive to that. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that I think phones in general are easier to use and privacy settings are easier to sort of jigger. I think if you play with stuff, I think you become aware that everything is drawing, for example, your location. And I, th- I think there's, you know, it's part of the lingua franca now. I think people basically understand that they're the product.
0: Yes. So, in fact, uh, uh, obviously, some technology companies monetize your personal data very, very directly by using your data to sell access to their user base uh, in a in a very focused and targeted way to sell you products or to understand more about consumer behavior. And this is all part of the free enterprise system. And it's part of what makes this country so successful is that we have the ability for companies to innovate and to constantly develop new forms of technology. But along with that come privacy concerns, like what is being done with my data? How could it harm me? And in some ways, those privacy concerns can be very problematic if it leads to people feeling that they are being spied on when in fact they are not, but they have a fear of what may be done with their data, and then uh, you may have a reaction or a response in terms of uh, what the government is expected to do about it. So I do think that expectations of privacy have changed uh, over time. This is something that we're seeing globally, and there is to some degree a very vibrant discussion going on around the world, but particularly between Europe and the United States around how do we regulate both the government and companies in terms of privacy. And it's look, holding up different models of how you go about doing that. And then in, in, in addition, you have countries like China who are trying to establish themselves as a separate path to follow in terms of how technology could be deployed and used. So I I think we're caught in that right now. We don't have a solution to it yet. And I can talk about that a lot more, of course, because it involves the research that I'm doing right now.
1: Well, let's let, and to jump back to your point about sort of what we know now versus what we knew then and how Snowden's actions, we did refer to them at the time as revelations. And I think that word may have been used at the time because the average American, not a guy working at ODNI, but I think the average American really didn't understand technology. So I do think it had an educational impact as you described. But yes, our European partners, if you want to call them that, do seem to have a very different idea of what privacy is. But I do have to ask, when you talk about European ideas of privacy versus the United States, do you really think they're different at this point?
0: So there are scholars who will go into the history of privacy in both the United States and Europe and get into sort of a philosophical or a cultural Examination of how our countries developed along different paths. Obviously, we're a much younger country. We have a particular history, we have a particular set of issues and focus. Whereas uh, in Europe, they had a very, a very diverse and, and, and very different path from the one that we went through in the United States. So I think there are scholars who will definitely argue that there are cultural ingrained differences in attitudes and perspectives on privacy. But at the working level, at the level that I've been working at for the last couple decades and what I'm seeing today, I think there's a lot of convergence. I think people have very similar attitudes toward privacy, but very different regulatory responses. You know, so in the United States, we have what we call what is often called a sectoral approach and sometimes pejoratively referred to as a patchwork of privacy laws. And it's true when you look at our privacy landscape setting aside the Fourth Amendment for a second, which establishes, of course, the foundation of how we regulate government access to data about which there is a reasonable expectation of privacy. But when you look at how Congress has regulated privacy, they they have one law for the banking sector, they have one law for the healthcare sector, they even have, which is my favorite law, the Video Privacy Protection Act, which came about after Judge Bork, remember, during the, this is again, this is ancient history for my students when I tell them about the Judge Bork hearings. And during those hearings, or at some point in that time period, a reporter went to Judge Bork's local video rental store. We used to have those, remember? So we had- And They
1: were Blockbuster, went to, they went yeah, to Blockbuster, this, didn't they?
0: This, this wasn't a Blockbuster, this was the local DC, I'm blanking on the name of it, but of course it went out of business. <laughs> And you used to go in there and rent physical copies of videotapes. And so this reporter went and asked the clerk for Judge Bork's video rental record. And the clerk gave him a copy of the record for, you know, that was the story that, the, that, that Judge Bork went to. And then the reporter wrote a story about it and there was nothing nefarious on there. It was just like film noir movies uh, <laughs> that he liked and things like that. But the members of Congress were so outraged, you know, appropriately so, that they passed a specific statute protecting your video rental records. And so that's just an example of how Congress works. We are reactive, we focus on something and then we regulate it. And it's not surprising that we then have these different laws covering different aspects of, of what we do. That law illustrates a good point, a second point that I like to make with my students it protects video rental records. So you think right away that is outdated, it's videotape rental records, I'm sorry, videotape rental records. So the use of the term videotape, you're like, oh, this thing is completely outdated, but they defined videotape in a technology neutral manner, basically saying it's the medium that contains and delivers the video. And now it's, it's widely understood to apply to Netflix and other streaming services. So your video rental records, your Netflix records and other records are still protected by the statute because they wrote it in a technology neutral manner.
1: Wow. So um, we're engaged in long-term thinking is what you're saying, yes. potentially, or it was an error. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very possibly. So by contrast, Europe has this omnibus legislation, this regulation that covers all of the member states called GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. And that just is a very different way of going about it. And and they've regulated what seems to be they've regulated the waterfront. In fact, they have not, but it seems that way to us.
1: They call it, what do they call it in GDPR? I believe they call it your personal data Is you own it, basically. What is yes. your personal data? It doesn't appear that clear, but it's anything that's collected when you interact with a computer by a third party.
0: Yes, certainly Any true. third party. Yeah, and that's a very good way to put it. They view the individual, and this is perfectly reasonable and it sounds great, right? So the individual owns, you should own the data about yourself. You should have, so when you think about what ownership means, and that's a great metaphor. I mean, they do not I don't think they use the term ownership specifically, but it is conceptually what they're talking about. You should be able to know what the data is, know who has it, pull it back. You know, you should be able to say, no, I, I no longer want you to have that. Even if I consented for, for you to have that data previously, I no longer consent for you to have that data. And now you have to unwind whatever you were working on with my data and give it back to me. And I I should be able to take my data from your service and give it to some other service. So there's data portability. So it's a lot of rights uh, that they accord the individual, which are admirable, frankly. I think those are good good rights and, and they make a lot of sense. But they do have an impact on business, and so in the U.S. we're more business focused. I think in general, in terms of the
1: business-friendly, isn't it? Business-friendly, friendly.
0: Right. Thank you. Business-friendly, but we're you know obviously we're worried about the free enterprise system and market forces, and we—that's a lot of our history. And so what I t- try to explain to my students is that in the U.S. you see the laws thinking more about data as the asset of the company. You know, the company's customer list. If it's a so if someone steals their customer list, that could be. A misappropriation of a trade secret, or something like that. So it's it's very it's an asset that you look at in a merger and acquisition. What does the customer database look like for this company? What can you? What have they been doing with the data? How ready is it to potentially further leverage for business purposes? And that becomes a part of the evaluation of a of a merger and acquisition. So it's a very different way of thinking about the data.
1: Well, let's um let's cycle back for just a second, and let's talk about. Any idea of reciprocity. I, I think the importance of GDPR is, of course, it said that your data is owned by you. You have this ability to get this back from these entities. I don't even want to say companies because you know data could be shared with one company who's then, you know, additional other companies that might receive the same data or even hold it. But I think one of the interesting things to me about this is the sort of lack of exceptions. They call them derogations, do they not? There's sort of lack of exceptions. But in any event, I guess, arguendo, and certainly the European court has said so, the idea is that U.S. companies who are global in nature, such as, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, your big ones, to the extent that they have information on European persons, which they certainly do, the European person's own their own data and can direct these U.S. companies accordingly. Under G- is that is that a mischaracterization or is that about right?
0: No, that's correct. So so okay. these big companies have to comply with GDPR, and certainly with respect to the Europeans uh, and their and their rights under GDPR. Absolutely.
1: Well, let's go back for a second and let's talk about in general, historically, how we have treated privacy, and then let's move that sort of little history uh, forward just a bit to what that looks like now in technology. But let's talk about the Fourth Amendment, the foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement, and some of the other legal uh, structures that sort of exist in this area.
0: So so a lot of what I've been talking about is commercial privacy. So privacy laws and restrictions and obligations that apply to companies. And what you're talking about with the Fourth Amendment and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and, and all of that history relates to how the government should protect privacy. And that is, of course, where the U.S. attitudes toward privacy really come to the fore. So when you talk to anybody in the United States about privacy, typically they they, they very quickly go to the Fourth Amendment. And that is understandable. When we broke away from uh, England during the Revolutionary War, and this is, of course, something that's, uh, we just had uh, the July 4th holiday, we wanted to get away from what we viewed as oppressive behavior by the king's officers executing general warrants and otherwise trampling on the rights of people in the colonies. So our view of what we wanted to do was establish our own democratic government. And when we were doing that, we were thinking, well, we don't want to replicate what we just fought a war to be independent from. And so when we think about these rights of privacy, we're naturally thinking about the government and what the government might do to encroach upon our freedoms. Uh, you saw this even during the uh, during the current COVID nineteen uh, pandemic responses, where people exhibited a lot of distrust to having the government be overly active in trying to do things to manage the pandemic and saying things like, "Well, I wouldn't carry an app that would do what gather my location data because it might." give that data to the government, and I don't trust the government to have that data, even to potentially save lives, many, (laughs) many lives, if they had that data. So, these are deeply ingrained attitudes in the United States, and they're reflected in in the Fourth Amendment, of course, and all the jurisprudence coming out of the Fourth Amendment, and then how it specifically applies to the intelligence agencies and the national security community, and what I assume are some of your regular listeners. People are very familiar with that, The Supreme Court, when it was tackling the Fourth Amendment and thinking about uh, its boundaries, basically said, hey, these things work in the law enforcement context. We want all of these protections for ordinary law enforcement activities and also to a somewhat different degree for domestic security activities, which was something you were alluding to earlier. And the Keith case, which is a famous Supreme Court case, is actually about a domestic security activity. And then the courts since then have established something that we refer to as the foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement, which means that when, there, when you're conducting national security activities and the Fourth Amendment otherwise would apply to those collection activities, the Fourth Amendment still applies. You still have to conduct searches that are reasonable the reasonableness requirement still applies, but what doesn't necessarily apply is the requirement for a warrant, to go get a warrant before you conduct a search. And of course, Congress stepped in and filled, that, filled the gap that's created by that case law with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act so that now you basically have to go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to get a court order based on probable cause In situations where the collection activity would otherwise require a warrant if conducted for under the Fourth Amendment, I'm vastly oversimplifying FISA. FISA, you could you could spend a course teaching each section of FISA. And um, so I know that some of your listeners will say, well, that's not quite technically specifically accurate, but that's an oversimplification of of that. So we have a very elaborate framework in our national security laws, I think, that govern how the government gets access to the data for national security purposes. And if I can just jump to Europe for a second, the Europeans have their own way of dealing with these same issues. It's just different from the US way of doing it. And it's it's much more diverse than I think most people realize. Part of the challenge that we've had on the US side We have the privacy concern that I was just talking about, and that's reflected in the Fourth Amendment and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And then, of course, we had the Church and Pike Committee hearings in the 1970s, which which also showed a lot of concern around, quote unquote, spying on Americans. And out of that came Executive Order 12333, which imposed further restrictions on how we collect information about uh, United States persons. And then we also have a whole line of cases and a whole bunch of case law and statutes relating to secrecy and executive orders. And that really becomes one of the key differentiators in terms of how we think of privacy in the national security context. It's that secrecy that becomes a huge challenge to deal with. And that's becoming an issue as well with our current discussions with the European Union.
1: I imagine those discussions can become somewhat fraught at times. And I have observed uh, one interesting thing about GDPR, which I can share, which is they have some exceptions, they call them derogations, but I noticed one of their emergency exceptions, which I think if it were in the United States would appear to apply to like law enforcement activities or national security. And if you look carefully at what they said at the time, it applied to sharing medical data in the situation of a pandemic, which I thought was very interesting. But um, yes, talk, if you will, for just a little bit about sort of the privileges that apply here in, in when you're talking about that, because there is, I'm certain, a belief that through tools like FOIA and other things, sometimes you can just acquire some of the data that is collected by intelligence agencies using things like these tools, such as FISA and so on.
0: Yeah, so that's been one of the challenges that we've had and I'll get to the specific, the the overall case that's the subject of a lot of discussion between the Europeans and the Americans over privacy and national security. But one of the challenges that I think any government has including European governments in terms of how do you protect privacy and security both in a democracy is this tension between secrecy and transparency. So a democracy obviously depends on transparency, the people need to know what the government's up to, they have all these mechanisms in the law to access the information if the government, they have the ability to sue the government if they wanna challenge uh, an activity. So you have this right to go to court and vindicate your interests. Uh, So that becomes a huge part of what we think of as a democracy, of course, we all know and all your listeners know that that's not the same, it doesn't apply the same way to national security because we have another competing but also very important goal for government here, which is not only to protect individual rights, but also to protect our, joint, our collective security, to keep the country safe from foreign interference and from foreign threats. So that is, a, is, a, is an essential part of what the government has to do. And so how do you deal with the fact that in a democracy, you should know what the government's doing, you should be able to challenge those actions in court, but at the same time acknowledge that in order to be effective intelligence services must be able to keep secrets right a fully transparent intelligence service is fully ineffective so they have to be able to keep secrets but you have these other competing rights and so we in the in the United States we've had you know cases we have the state secrets privilege which is the ability of the government to step into civil private litigation and have the case thrown out if it cannot proceed without disclosing classified information. We have a whole system for classifying information and for dealing with Freedom of Information Act requests, but there are exemptions for natural security information and the like. Having said that, I think the U.S. certainly has learned in the last few years the importance of transparency. So we're doing a lot proactively to enhance transparency and provide more information to the public. And this is where we're having some challenges when we're having these discussions with our partners in Europe. Because in the European Union, the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, does not apply to the national security activities of the member states. So when the member states got together to create the European Union, they reserved for themselves the ability to protect their own security. They did not hand over national security to the European Union itself, to the entity of the European Union, the treaty uh, uh, entity or the entities created by those treaties And as a result, up until recently, at least, it's been well established that how a member state, how a country like Germany or France or Italy or Spain, et cetera, et cetera, how those countries' legal frameworks deal with national security while protecting privacy is not the province of GDPR. It's not the province of, of the European Union. It's not the province of the Court of Justice of the European Union. Rather, they have a different treaty that they all signed called the European Convention of Human Rights. And there's a different court that adjudicates issues under that treaty uh, called the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, there's a lot of case law coming out of the European Court of Human Rights uh, that applies to the signatories for the, of the European Convention of Human Rights. And that series of rulings acknowledges this, this central challenge for democracy, which is we have to keep secrets But we also have to have the ability for people to have rights and privacy. And so they're very much focused on balancing that within this separate framework under the European Convention of Human Rights. But under that separate framework, each member state can still do it in a very different way. And so this is where it becomes very complicated to have the conversation, because obviously the U.S. has a certain way of doing things. And now you compare it to what Europe does. Well, there are 27 now member states of the European Union and 27 different ways for doing it. And so it's, it's a challenging conversation to have. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates to the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association
1: and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.